Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. Today, we are going to begin an exploration of the book of Judges. Now, there are books in the Bible that can be frustrating, sometimes, dare I say, even a little bit boring to read through. And then there are books in the Bible that are completely depressing and discouraging. And Judges is one of those types of books. The book of Judges is heartbreaking, it's frustrating, and it's really discouraging because in many ways, friends, this is our story. A people trapped in sin, a people who cannot get out of their own way, a people who seemingly cannot get it together, making one bad decision after another. And the book of Judges, like all of Scripture, is going to point us forward to our need for a righteous and godly king. But we're obviously getting way ahead of ourselves here. Before we jump into the book of Judges, let's orient ourselves around a timeline. Remember that the Bible is not a fairy tale story that happened once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's a real story that happened to real people in real places in real time. So where are we in history? Well, the earliest semi-datable event that we can say with confidence in Scripture is the birth of Abraham in 2167 B.C., If you can imagine a timeline moving from the birth of Abraham, moving from left to right towards the birth of Jesus, the next big event on our calendar is going to be the age of the patriarchs. The word patriarch means founding father or ruling father, beginning father. These are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. He's the last of the three patriarchs. And when he dies, there are 70 people in the family of Abraham, and they're living in the land of Egypt. They're there for over 400 years. After a few generations, they find themselves oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. And this slavery extends to 1446. In 1446, God sends Moses in to lead his people not only out of slavery, but lead them to Mount Sinai, where God enters into a covenant with them and gives them the Ten Commandments. They should have taken a two-week walk from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, but instead, because of the rebellion and hard hearts, it takes them 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, all the adults who have left the land of Egypt, except for Caleb and Joshua, have died in the wilderness, and Moses gives the farewell speech, that is the book of Deuteronomy, and then he dies in 1406. The people then go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. We talked about him in our last study. Joshua leads the people for 20 or 30 years. They begin to conquer the land of Canaan and to settle into it. When Joshua dies, that takes us to what's called the period of the judges. Judges are not courtroom officials. They are regional military leaders that God raises up for the deliverance of his people. The last judge is a man named Samuel. Samuel anoints the first king, a man named Saul. Saul is tall, he's handsome, he's wealthy, he's strong, but he's weak in faith and character, and God removes him from being king over his people and anoints King David, a man after his own heart. David rules for 40 years. It is to David that God gives the promise of the eternal king, the deliverer that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. God promises David, it's coming through your family line. When David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne. Solomon also reigns for 40 years. He builds the temple in Jerusalem. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And Rehoboam takes some really bad advice from his friends, and he leads to the kingdom splitting in two. So we now have two Israelite kingdoms on earth. We have Israel in the north, led by 20 different kings from 10 different dynasties. None of these kings worship Yahweh, and the people are led farther and farther into idolatry before God sends Assyria to destroy and exile the northern kingdom in 722. We have Judah in the south. Judah is ruled by 20 kings from one dynasty, the family of David. And some of them are good. Most of them are bad. And the people make it a little bit longer. We get till 586. And in 586, 
God sends the Babylonians into Judah. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They take the Davidic kings off into prison, and they take the people out of the promised land into exile. It seems like God's plan of redemption has failed, but it has not. In 538, King Cyrus, the first king of the Persian Empire, issues a decree that allows all conquered peoples to go home. About 50,000 Jews take him up on the offer. They return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They begin to rebuild their life in the Promised Land. And in 430 BC, Malachi writes his book of prophecy, and that brings the Old Testament to a close. Now, obviously, we're talking about the book of Judges, so we're going to be talking about the period of the Judges which if you like to date things on a calendar, would be from about 1380 to 1050 BC. So we are in between the death of Joshua and the rise of the monarchy in King Saul. So that's kind of our our bookends that we're working in between. Remember, friends, that Joshua and Judges are both a part of the section of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, that we call the prophets. And the prophets are divided into two sections. We have the former prophets, which give us a narrative history of Israel in the Promised Land. That's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and the latter prophets who give us God's perspective on the events that happens in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And those latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. So let's get our bearings in the book of Judges. Who wrote it? We do not know. Uh, But we do want to remember that judges, again, they're not courtroom officials. Don't think of guys in black robes with white wigs, banging a gavel, saying you're out of order. No, these are military deliverers raised up by God. When? Again, we don't know for sure, but we do know the events take place from the death of Joshua until the rise of Saul. Where? Within the borders of the promised land. A couple of these events will take place just for a blip outside of the borders of the promised land. But almost entirely, this story takes place within the bounds of the promised land. Now, one more note about the where. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely that given the fact that Israel at this point is not a united monarchy, but rather a loose confederation of tribes, that some of these judges could have been reigning at the same time. Now, we're, we're getting these stories, you know, this judge, then this judge, then this judge. But that's not to say that judges, you know, one judge ruling up in the north, one judge ruling down the south, one judge ruling in the east, one judge ruling in the west, dealing with different conflicts and different problems. That could, and in fact, probably is the case. So these stories are all kind of happening on top of one another. Why do we have this book, this bleak, depressing book? First, to record how sin compromised Israel's national identity and mission. Second, to trace how Israel's covenant disloyalty forfeited blessings and brought curses. Third, to describe the moral failure of the judges and the need for a righteous king to lead God's people. And fourth, to highlight the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. In all the darkness of the book of Judges, there is one bright shining light, and it is Yahweh and his faithfulness in providing for Israel's need. Let's take a look at our first theme in the book of Judges, and that is this. The author of Judges recorded how sin compromised Israel's national identity and mission. Now, before Joshua died, he warned the Israelites to get rid of their foreign gods, the idols, and serve Yahweh alone. I'm going to read to you Joshua 24, 14 through 24, and I'll give you a little hint, friends. I want, particularly you who are parents, I want you to listen for what you don't here. So I'm going to read you Joshua 24, 14 through 24. Now, therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord your God for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve. Did you hear it? Or rather, did you not hear it? What did Joshua tell them to do? Put away your idols. And three times the people answer, we will serve Yahweh. But never once do they say anything about getting rid of their foreign gods. If you're a parent, you've probably had a scene like this. You go downstairs because you hear someone crying and you ask one of your children a Point blank, direct question. Did you bite your brother? And the answer comes back. He started it. (laughs) You didn't answer my question, but I think you kind of did answer my question. And by the people saying, we will serve Yahweh. And by never saying, and we will get rid of our foreign gods. What the people are going to try and do is they're going to try and worship Yahweh and worship the other gods. And this... Silence, this omission of of getting rid of the idols is going to define the next phase of Israel's history because Judges records the story of the people of Israel moving into Canaan and becoming just like the Canaanites. The book serves as a record of the downward spiral of the Israelites. So let's trace this downward trajectory. The book starts out well, as we see various tribes taking possession of the land and dispossessing the Canaanites. But tribe after tribe fails to drive out the Canaanites entirely. I'm not going to read to you all of Judges 1, 19-36, but just kind of highlight it for you. In verse 19, Judah, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Verse 21, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of the villages. And then verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the villages. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. And then here's what's worse. You notice the shift. Previously, it says the Canaanites were living amongst the Israelites, but for the Asherites, they're living among the Canaanites. So they're not the majority people. They're just a a minority holdout within the Canaanites. They're just moving next door. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. They lived among the Canaanites. And then Dan doesn't even conquer their territory, and they just kind of live off to the side. So right from the start, we have a massive problem. And their excuses, the Israelites' excuses for why they haven't driven the people out, is pretty pathetic. Judges 1.19, the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, 
because they had chariots of iron. Now, chariots of iron in these days would have been the equivalent of a tank. This is the apex of ancient military technology. It's not a small deal to be facing an army with chariots of iron. But as God reminds the people of Israel in Judges 2, 1 through 5, didn't the Egyptians have chariots of iron? Didn't I destroy the Egyptians? Do you think I'm bothered by chariots of iron? As we see, ultimately, the problem was Israel's lack of faith, not the power of their enemies. And that's always going to be the case for God's people. And so this initial failure to drive the Canaanites out kicks off the downward spiral of the judges. Verse 3 in chapter 2 says, So now I say, here's Yahweh speaking to his people, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. That's what's going to happen in this chapter. This cycle, this cycle of idolatry, foreign oppression, a cry for help, and God's deliverance, this four-part cycle is going to happen six times in the book. But we want to emphasize the downward trajectory. This is not just a carousel going round and around in a circle. This is a downward spiral. Because at the end of each cycle, we read something like this, like Judges 2.19. Whenever the judge died, they turned back, right? the judge that God raised up to deliver them, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So generation A gets on this cycle and they're delivered and they begat generation B and generation B is worse than generation A and they go on this cycle and God delivers them and generation B begats generation C and they're worse than generation B and so on and so forth. So we are going down, down, down. We are getting farther away from God's ideal. So just to make this concrete and real, let's look at two specific examples of this downward spiral in the book of Judges. First, the downward trajectory with idolatry. The people begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites. The author states this in a general way before providing concrete examples for the rest of the book. Judges 3.6, kind of giving a summary statement of what happens to the people of Israel during this time. It says, and their daughters, the Canaanites, their daughters, they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. So over and over again, the people worship different gods of different nations, looking around for someone they think can protect them or give them abundant harvests or crops or help them with fertility, whatever it is they think they need. They're looking in all of the wrong places. And God is just thoroughly disgusted with this. In one of these cycles in Judges 10, the people cry out to God and God answers, go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And you would think the fact that the Israelites say, oh, no, actually these gods can't save us would lead them to stop worshiping these gods, but it doesn't. Another concrete example of the Israelites' addiction to idolatry is the story of a man named Micah. And Micah, we get his story at the end of the book, although chronologically, it probably happened at the very beginning of the time of the judges. Micah makes an idol for himself, and the tribe of Dan, on their way to attack an unarmed city, steals this idol. Right? They steal this idol from the fellow Israelite, and Micah cries out, You take my gods that I made and the priests that I anointed, and go away, and what have I have left? And you want to just shake him and say, You have Yahweh! But Micah, like most Israelites at this time, doesn't care about Yahweh. He wants his idol. So what is it about idolatry that is so attractive? Not only if we're being honest to the ancient Israelites, but to us. Why is it that the human heart is an idol factory, as John Calvin said? Well, I want to give you six reasons 
that idolatry is appealing, not just to the Israelites, but to me and you. First, idolatry is physical and visible. It doesn't require faith to worship an idol. You can see it. You can hold it. Idolatry is selfish and works-oriented. It gives you a checklist that you, since you get to make the idol and choose the God you serve, wouldn't you know it? It's always a checklist that you can accomplish. Idolatry is easy. The idols of the ancient world and the idols of today don't call us to the same degree of holiness and sacrifice that the true God does. It's easy to worship idols. Idolatry is convenient. The people of Israel had to worship a particular way. They had to worship at a particular place at particular times. But you can practice idolatry anywhere, anytime, any which way you want. Fifth, idolatry is normal. Everyone does it. Christians today and the Israelites of the ancient world, they and we were the outliers. Everybody else worshiped idols. It's weird to worship the true God. And idolatry is pleasure-oriented. It's all about you getting what you want. And this is what we have to be on guard against. We should not read these stories and think, oh, how could they? I would never. But take heed lest we fall because we are prone to the same addiction to idolatry as the Israelites. One more concrete example of this downward trajectory, and it's a downward trajectory with morality. One of the most troubling stories for people in the book of Judges is a man named Jephthah. And Jephthah is an Israelite, and he offers to sacrifice his daughter to Yahweh because he thinks that's what Yahweh wants, because that's what the pagan gods would have wanted. A few chapters later, we meet Samson, who marries outside of the covenant and then sleeps with a Canaanite prostitute, and this leads to his downfall. At the very end of the book, the men of Benjamin commit sexual abuse and act so wickedly that it brings to mind the heinous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are supposed to see an echo in the story of Benjamin and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judges is not an easy book to read. By living like the Canaanites, a people so wicked that God had sent Israel in to destroy them as judgment for their wickedness. By living like the Canaanites, Israel lost their national identity. They were not God's chosen people. They were not living as his priests. By living like the Canaanites, Israel failed in their mission to serve as a kingdom of priests to the world. When people passed through Israel, they looked and acted just like everybody else. So their God must just be like everybody else's God. Third, by living like the Canaanites, Israel forfeited the blessings that Yahweh wanted to give them. Yahweh is a generous God, a kind and loving father, but he will not reward bad behavior. And so Israel misses out on true lasting blessing because they want the easy, temporary satisfaction that idolatry gives. And fourth, by living like the Canaanites, Israel brought on the curses that Yahweh warned them about. There's no neutral place to stand in this world, friends. If you reject God's way and you reject his blessing, you are choosing rebellion and you are choosing the curse. And so in our next episode, Lord willing, we're going to trace how those last two consequences, forfeiting the blessings and bringing on the curses, work themselves out in the book of Judges. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless. God bless.